This episode of Intelligent Medicine is brought to you by Banatrol. If you suffer from diarrhea caused by IBS or any other type of digestive issue that's preventing you from leaving your house due to the fear of flare-ups, check out Banatrol from Medtrition. Banatrol stops diarrhea without causing constipation and is safe to take every day. Unlike over-the-counter and prescription medications would cause constipation and disrupt digestive health, Banatrol takes a nutritional approach. The all-natural formula contains only two ingredients, a proprietary blend of dehydrated banana flakes paired with a clinically proven GOS prebiotic fiber. After prescribing Banatrol to some of my patients with IBS associated with GI urgency and diarrhea, several have pronounced it a godsend. You can try Banatrol risk-free for 30 days by going to trybanatrol.com. If for any reason it doesn't work, you'll receive a 100% refund of the purchase price. That's T-R-Y-B-A-N-A-T-R-O-L.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hopp. What I hope will be a very illuminating podcast because today we're going to focus on vitamin D and in particular, vitamin K with one of our go-to experts. He is Neil Levin. He's Senior Nutrition Education Manager and a product formulator for Now Foods. Uh, their professional brand is Protocol for Life Balance, PFLB. And PFLB is one of my favorite uh, professional brands. You'll find it on Fullscript. Uh, I recommend that to many of my patients, and I recommend it to listeners. Uh, and so Neil is one of these um, polymaths. Uh, he's a real expert in the field of nutrition. He lectures uh, all over the country and, in fact, all over the world. He's uh, really in demand as an educator. And today he's going to give us a little bit of education about the fascinating synergy between vitamins D3 and K2, you now often find them together in formulations. So we're going to find out uh, what that's all about. Go ahead, Neil. Okay. So these are two vitamins, and you get these numbers after them, vitamin D3, vitamin K2. So there are different versions of the vitamins that people should know about uh, when they're looking at supplementation or even what's in fortified foods. So in the body, we make the form of vitamin D known as vitamin D3. And that's made by the cholesterol, the, the sterols in the cholesterol in our skin converting into a certain compound when ultraviolet B rays from the sun get through the skin and actually convert that into the first step of making vitamin D in the body. And then it goes through the liver and the kidneys and it makes certain hormones and things like that that are used to regulate various things in the body. And vitamin D actually has a wide range of roles. Uh, uh, bone health and dental health is the best known and the one with the most authority in terms of government recommendations. And, the, and, and what fact, we learned in, in medical school, of course, is that vitamin D was the thing that staved off rickets. 
and beyond that, it wasn't much use. And you didn't need much to stave off rickets, so uh, it wasn't a very important vitamin. Oh, by the way, it was very toxic. So you had to be careful because you could easily overdose on it uh, as a fat-soluble nutrient. But what's changed in our appreciation of, of vitamin D since those staid days of real conservatism about vitamin D? Well, yeah, I think there, there was a lot of ignorance about vitamin D at the time. And so people knew that vitamin D was necessary but thought it had a very limited role. And over the decades since, We've found receptors for vitamin D in the prostate gland. We've found receptors in immune cells. We, we found it has a wide-ranging effect on many different things in the body. Uh, muscles use vitamin D, you know, all kinds of other areas that people were simply not aware of back then. So why do these different parts of the body need vitamin D? And it turns out that vitamin D does things, for example, right now, with all the immune concerns, that vitamin D actually makes the immune system more powerful, that it's like upgrading the weaponry of your army by giving vitamin D to your body, by having adequate amounts of vitamin D in the body. And it turns out that the amounts that are needed in our bodies to do these things that are beyond bone and dental health are using five or ten times as much vitamin D as the amount needed for bone and dental health, which is the most basic thing that vitamin D does in the body. So these other benefits, uh, heart, muscle, are we're looking at thousands, not hundreds, of international units required for those kind of benefits as an optimal level. So when we're looking at serum levels, and you know, if you look at a standard blood test, 30 nanogram per milliliter is a standard amount that's considered above that is adequate, below that, you know, a little less adequate or, or deficient as you get lower. And it turns out that levels above 50 are almost double that basic level that's considered adequate by most authorities is the level that you need for optimal health in these other areas. And when I'm looking around the world and traveling around the world, we see other benefits recognized in other countries that are not officially recognized in, in the United States. And that's one reason why the daily value, the RDA, is based uh, on, on something, you know, some evidence base but they're basing it solely on bone and dental health and right. not the other known benefits of vitamin D. No, so since vitamin D can do so many other things at higher levels, we really need to be considering getting a more adequate amount and not just covering the basic bone and dental health. Don't you want your immune system working well? Don't you want your cardiovascular system working well? It actually has a claim in Europe to prevent sways and falls, that a vitamin D having not enough Right. can actually make you lose your balance. And that might be one of the triggers for older people falling down, breaking hips, things so, like that. So not just not just bone fragility, but it may help to reduce the risk of fractures uh, in a couple of ways, by fortifying bones, but also by helping with uh, balance and uh, lower extremity muscle strength. Yeah, I think the I think the balance is related to what you said that uh, muscle strength. Mm -hmm. so, so when it comes to the immune system, let me see if I get this right. Uh, 
vitamin D increases something. Let me see if I have the pronunciation. It's catholicidin. Uh, and that is something that uh, gets produced uh, with the help of vitamin D. And that, that's actually important for the function of the macrophages. Uh, that's just one aspect of how vitamin D impacts uh, immunity. But uh, that could prove helpful uh, in a variety of settings, clearly. Yes, and there have been a number of studies. Uh, I'm actually working on some slides for a presentation in Dubai in a, next month talking about immunity. And for vitamin D specifically, there's a, an association with, uh, they've actually looked at s several studies uh, in a meta-analysis where they review other studies. And they found that when they compare patients with vitamin D deficiency and without, the ones who do not have a deficiency of the vitamin had better outcomes in COVID. Uh, the death rate, severity of disease, oxygen therapy requirement, invasive mechanical ventilation need. And it also showed that uh, studies where people were non-supplemented uh, versus supplemented, the ones who, who took vitamin D had, again, better rates of primary clinical outcomes, including death. So th there is a, you know, a very strong association, and some authorities have said that the evidence is enough to call it uh, a significant proof, even though it's not a double-blind, placebo-controlled, mm -hmm. switch-over study, right. that there's enough evidence there to say that it, it's real. Well, it, it seems that uh, American uh, authorities are very stingy when it comes to making vitamin claims. But uh, I noted a couple of months ago that uh, in Ireland, you may be aware of this, of course, that uh, a, a panel of distinguished scientists urged the Irish government to deploy vitamin D against COVID uh, based on, you know, plausible evidence, uh, evidence of lack of harm, the risk-benefit equation, you know, favors taken more vitamin D. Uh, and that's a populace that might be very deficient. Yes. Uh, in fact, you know, when you're looking at Ireland or, or Northern Europe, I mean, they're about like where Canada is on the globe, mm -hmm. as far north of there. So they don't get that much sun. You know, it's well known people in Western Europe are not getting sufficient sun. And even if you look at places like Spain, Greece, Florida, people are not getting enough vitamin D from sunlight mm -hmm. because they, they cover up, they... They might be older and institutionalized. They're, they're simply not out exposed to the sun for long enough at the right time of, of the day in the year to make vitamin D in their skin in adequate amounts. So we, we see these broad ranges of people that are not getting enough, and that affects things like immunity. It affects their prostate. It affects their bone health. And we know older people have problems with all these issues. Yeah. Well, here's the tricky part, though, Neil, uh, is how much should you recommend that a patient take? And I got to tell you, from my clinical experience over, you know, maybe 30 plus years where I've recognized vitamin D is important, different strokes for different folks, right? And it has to do with certain metabolic characteristics, metabolic roadblocks that certain people have to vitamin D uptake and utilization. Uh, so, there is no standard dose, right? 
There is not, and they don't. They don't even have a standard definition of a vitamin D deficiency. So there's not a universal recommendation. This is the amount people need. Now we know there's a daily value, which is based on the RDA. Uh, daily value is what appears on labels, not not RDAs. Uh, so the FDA actually tweaks these numbers a little bit and and averages them out and does things like that to come out with daily values. So what you see on a label for a food or vitamin is going to be a daily value version. And it went up in 2010, the, the RDA went up from 400 to 600 units a day. Uh, the daily value just went up to 600 units in the last year. It took about 10 years right. to raise the daily value after the Institute of Medicine said people need 50% more. Creeping and that progress. was still very conservative. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. it really... The RDA should be 2,000 mm-hmm. by based on all the medical evidence, mm-hmm. and not, not 600. And for these extra benefits, we're looking at four to 6,000 units a day as a typical amount people would need. Now, the problem is if someone is deficient in vitamin D and they have very low levels, taking that amount is not going to boost it up to normal in weeks or months. Right. It'll take years. Yep. And you really have to get above 10,000 units a day to start raising the serum levels noticeably. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's why doctors are giving 50,000 units. But if you give it once a, a week, that's only about seven or 8,000 units mm-hmm. a day. That's mm-hmm. still not a huge amount. Right. And we have to do that sometimes. Uh, some patients really have you know, the proverbial hollow leg for vitamin D, you know, like the people who can drink and you wonder, you know, why they don't get drunk. Uh, It's like some people really require high doses of vitamin D to achieve optimal blood levels. And that's why we have to retest. You know, we may take a patient and say, vitamin D is abysmal, start on 50,000 once a week. Uh, And, uh, you know, a couple of months later, we'll check and we'll see if they're making progress. And then maybe we'll say, okay, get on a maintenance dose of two or 4,000 a day or 5,000 a day. That's still less than 7,000 a day. And that's, that's your dose. And then they stabilize. Yeah. And it's really considered safe to do up to 10,000 units a day for just about anybody. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're not, we're not talking about toxic levels. We're, right. we're talking about healthy levels. Right. Yeah, I actually did a, a, a case report for the Townsend Letter. You may have seen it, Townsend Letter for Doctors and Patients, about a patient, strange case, patient who came to see me uh, at the behest of his mom. His mom called me up. She's a patient. She said, I'm really worried about my son. He's been taking really high doses of vitamin D. And I was a little skeptical at first, you know, maybe she's a bit of a nervous Nelly. And I said, well, I'll be happy to see him and I'll evaluate him. Uh, and so what he told me was, he had heard that Dr. Fauci had advocated that people take vitamin D, vitamin D, you know, being helpful for COVID. And Captain Fauci said, yeah, I might take that. So based on that recommendation, he started taking vitamin D. And he showed me, he actually had a picture on his cell phone of how much he was taking. He was taking 5,000 international units, four twice daily, and he'd been doing that for several months. So... Uh, <laughs> but he was only doing five days right. a week. So uh, that's like 40,000 a day, five days a week. Uh, that's quite a lot. So I was a little concerned. So I tested him six ways to Sunday. I tested his levels. I tested to see if he had excess calcium in his urine. I tested a bunch of things. And 
Not that it was a good idea, but lo and behold, he, he felt fine and he was unscathed by it, which gives you an idea that there is a margin for error on vitamin D. No way am I recommending that people take, you know, 40,000 international units of vitamin D unsupervised uh, per day. Uh, but, uh, you know, I wrote it up as a case report showing that uh, healthy individuals, people without kidney failure, without underlying conditions, uh, can take pretty high doses and still not have toxicity. But you can overaccumulate it. You can develop kidney stones. You can develop uh, severe muscle pains because of calcification. Uh, it can cause can cause liver problems at very high doses. So you got to be careful um, and get tested and get supervised if you're going to take high doses. Um, so let's move along to vitamin K. And in part two, we're going to talk a lot more about vitamin K. Um, from what I remember, when I was first introduced to vitamin K, the K stands for coagulation, a German word for coagulation. So right. uh, vitamin K helps your blood clot. A lot of people worried that you take too much vitamin K and you're going to get a blood clot. True or false? Well, it depends. There's, I mean, there's a lot of confusion even among physicians on this issue, and I've yeah. read up about it. You know, obviously, if you have to explain products, you know, like vitamin K to physicians, you have to have some idea what's going on. And it turns out that vitamin K1, which is the kind you get in green leafy vegetables and and those kind of foods, and it represents about 90% of the vitamin K in the diet, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, is the type that is making these clotting factors. And mm -hmm. if you're taking these anticoagulation drugs, they're often called blood thinners, mm -hmm. uh, like Coumadin, that it's affecting the vitamin K. It's, in, it's, it's going against the vitamin K and stopping it from making the clotting factors. So there's another type of vitamin K called vitamin K2 that does something very different. It can affect clotting factors, but it has to be converted in the body to do that. It's not the primary function. So where, where vitamin K1 tends to be in the liver making clotting factors, vitamin K2 is circulating and helping to mobilize and move calcium out of the bloodstream and into the tissues where it ne is needed. Mm -hmm. uh, you need it for muscle contraction. You need it, for, of course, for bones and dental. You know, there's other areas where calcium is used. You know, there's calcium channels in many types of cells. So when, when you know this, uh, there's one other point that I, I found is very interesting that a lot of practitioners don't know, is that if you're on something like Coumadin and have to regulate your vitamin K intake, it is important to get adequate vitamin K to not be deficient, mm -hmm. first of all. So you need, you need some. It's not an absolute prohibition on vitamin K because then you, you right. run the risk of bone problems and heart problems, right? And that's the very exactly. group of and people who might really be Really the issue is not varying the dosing a lot from day to day. Mm -hmm. Not get 300 micrograms one day and yep. eat a huge salad yep. and then the next day you get nothing. Because your, your, your INR, your pro time would bounce around. Your bleeding time would be affected uh, and be erratic. Right. So you, you need a steady state of vitamin K intake rather than no vitamin K intake. And right. I find a lot of patients 
really don't understand that. They've never been told that. And uh, even people like my mother, who was on Coumadin for, for years, uh, she was going into the doctor and having her levels checked every week, which I thought was excessive. And she was not eating green vegetables. She's not a, a salad eater or a green vegetable eater. So she's not getting a ton of vitamin K. Because she was mortified by this warning, like, don't have any vitamin K. Make sure you don't have any leafy greens and all, you know, which is the old uh, kind of uh, uh, outmoded advice that has been purveyed by uh, nutritionists, uh, you know, old-fashioned nutritionists who weren't aware of what you're just talking about. Yeah. So about 10% of dietary vitamin K is in the form of vitamin K2. And that's really a kind of a fermented food form of vitamin K. And you know, so you get it in cheese and yogurts and you know, uh, fermented cabbage, sauerkraut, those kind of things would have vitamin K2. And vitamin K2 is not very bioavailable typically. It, it, and we also make some by our intestinal bacteria, mm-hmm. by the way, yeah. is another source. But, of course, you can only absorb fat-soluble nutrients like vitamin K when you eat a meal and you mm-hmm. have enough fat to trigger your uh, bile and your pancreatic enzymes and those kind of things. So a lot of the vitamin K we make in our gut it just passes through and it doesn't really get absorbed. And but, just you know, let me the mention, there, there is a phenomenon in, in medicine where uh, uh, sick patients in the intensive care unit who are basically fed kind of crappy diets, barely can eat, uh, they're given lots of antibiotics, the antibiotics kill off their intestinal bacteria, uh, they, they sometimes develop uh, serious hemorrhaging because they're, they're deficient in vitamin K. They're not getting it from the diet, and their endogenous production, the production that occurs via the bacteria in their intestinal tracts, uh, has, uh, has been eradicated by the antibiotics. So this is a known problem in you know, seriously ill patients. So you need a little bit of the vitamin K to normalize your blood clotting. I just might add, um, and maybe you can confirm this, I think it's only Coumadin or Warfarin that's affected by vitamin K. I believe some of the newer blood thinners like Eliquis, Pradaxa, uh, certainly heparin, uh, Xarelto. I don't. I think there's a different pathway. Am I correct in saying that that, 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 that there's no contraindication for vitamin K usage in patients on those medications that are sometimes used for atrial fibrillation, for example? Yes. I, I mean, I, I personally have had AFib for about 15 years, and I'm on Xarelto, and I don't mm-hmm. have to worry about what I eat. I don't have to think yeah. about okay. uh, vitamin K levels or anything like that. Okay, great. Uh, because it's a, a, one of the newer drugs that doesn't have that effect, and that's one of the reasons I decided to go on that one in versus some of the other options, because it, it seemed like an easy way to do that without having to modify the diet because i do like to eat greens and things like that Mm -hmm. well let's get the word out now to all the you know health practitioners who are listening you know mds and do's and uh you know nds and uh the uh people who are professional nutritionists clinical nutritionists rds cns's that you if you're taking these other types of blood thinners vitamin k is not contraindicated. I so often see doctors saying, oh, don't take vitamin K because you're on a blood thinner. And it's only applicable uh, if you're on warfarin. And even if you're on warfarin, if you take a modest dose consistently, uh, it should not be a problem, right? 
That's true. And the clinical dose of vitamin K2 starts at 45 micrograms a day, which is less than the daily value, the RDA. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about clinical benefits, you're looking starting at 160 to 180 micrograms and going up to three to 600, even up in the thousands of Mm -hmm. micrograms Mm -hmm. for vitamin K, uh, vitamin K2. And there's one form of vitamin K2 called MK7. Can we can we hold that can form, we hold that discussion because yeah. we're getting it a little bit of the alphabet soup that confuses people about vitamin K. There's K1, K2, and then there's subtypes of K2, and uh, the dosages are different, and it some claim superiority. So maybe you can inform us about that in part two. Uh, our discussion yeah. today is uh, with Neil Levin. Uh, he's senior nutrition education manager for Now Foods, also Protocol for Life Balance. That's their physician brand. You can access those products at uh, uh, via drhoffman.com at full script. And uh, these products are also uh, available. We'll give you the heads up uh, what some of the product options are. You know, nice combinations of vitamin D3 and K2. And we'll talk about the rationale for combining those in part two. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.